0: Hello and welcome back to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the Food Curious. This week, we're going to talk about a part of the body that many of us have a love-hate relationship with, and that would be fat. My guest for the show today is Dr. Sylvia Terra, a biochemist who was driven to research fat, science, and lifestyle after she finally got fed up with eating less and exercising more than her slimmer friends throughout her life. In her best-selling book, The Secret Life of Fat, she reveals the complex biology of fat, how it resists loss, and what to do to remove stubborn fat. Dr. Tara holds a PhD in biochemistry from the University of California at San Diego and a master's in business from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. She was also a consultant with McKinsey & Company and has worked at some of the world's largest biotechnology companies. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Dr. Tar. It's great to meet you. Great. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. So let's just start with the basics. Why did you decide to write a book about fat? (laughs) Uh,
1: That's something I have battled for a long, long time. I think really since I was a kid, I always noticed that I gained weight a lot easier than other people around me. My, my skinny little girlfriends back in elementary junior high, they could sit there in their bikini and eat whatever they want, you know, candy, cake, whatever, by the poolside. And they have, were much leaner than me, right? And so um, anyway, I got very frustrated with this. It continued into adulthood where I had to uh, really restrict calories by far more than other people, work at it much harder while other people kind of flippantly ate all around me. So I was about to go on on yet another diet, you know, in my 40s. And I thought, you know, I really have to understand fat. I have to stop just following everybody else's advice um, and learn all about my body and why I'm so resistant to fat loss. Uh, I'm a biochemist, so I had plenty of tools to go and investigate the science behind fat. And as I did it, I just became really surprised at what I was learning I read like a thousand articles out of the scientific literature. I talked to scientists about their research and, you know, fat's not just fat. And I think that was the big learning for me. The big aha moment is that fat is a lot more complex than just a bunch of extra calories. It's actually an endocrine organ. It is releasing hormones into your body that your body depends on. And when you try to lose fat, your body works in concert to try to protect your fats because it doesn't want to lose fat. So really, once you gain, losing it is quite a battle, and even when you lose it, your body has all kinds of tools to put it right back on you because it did not want to lose that fat. So really, the best thing you can do is is not gain that extra weight. Um, Once you do, you're kind of in for a a fight, um, possibly forever. I hate to say that, but it's better that you know the truth so that you know what to do about it than just keep on following one diet after another like I was doing in my life.
0: So what within all of these different um, literature searches and all the different experts that you spoke with, what were some of the most surprising things that you learned about fat?
1: Yeah, I think that fat can control your brain. It can control your mind. It can control your metabolism. It can control your reproductive organs. You'd be surprised at what fat can do. It's almost a conductor of sorts, a conductor of activities in your body. So you should never underestimate your fats or the importance of it or the power of it. But one hormone that's really interesting is leptin, right? Leptin's been written about a lot. And your fat cells release leptin. It circulates in your bloodstream, and it binds with areas of your hypothalamus. And once it's there, it can control your appetite. and also it binds to your skeletal muscles and pretty much tells your body that everything's okay in the world and your body can burn energy you know, as needed. Now, when you start to lose fat, you get a decrease in leptin, right? Because fat produces leptin, a decrease in it gives you less leptin. When your brain detects less leptin in circulation, it goes into overdrive, driving your appetite to, to eat more, right? So people who have lost say 10% of their body weight or more, they're much more driven to eat their their brains are more excited by images of food. And this has been proven scientifically with fMRI images. And those areas of the brain responsible for self-control are less activated than a normal person. So a person losing weight is more driven to eat more, and they're less able to control themselves around food. And also our muscles revert to a more efficient um, type of protein for burning calories. So you actually burn 22% fewer calories than somebody who's not, lost weight right so it's not that fat people are lazy or dieters aren't exercising enough they're actually not burning as much their body is is designed in a way to try to maintain that fat once we try to lose it so there's there's a penalty for yo-yo dieting for going Mm -hmm. up and down so someone who say was at um, 170 pounds and lost 20 pounds to get to 150 when you compare their body to someone who's at 150 pounds naturally without having to lose weight to get there The person who lost weight to get to 150 um, will actually burn 22% fewer calories and have to eat less than the person who's naturally at 150 pounds. And that person's also much more excited about food. right? So so your body really wants that fat back. And and the sad part about this is is that this might not go away, this effect. It's been studied for about six years. And for everybody, that effect didn't go away. They had a caloric penalty even at six years. Don't let it depress you. I know that can sound very depressing, but it is the truth. It's what our bodies are. So if you're struggling with weight and you find that you regain it really quickly after you lose some, this is the reason why. And now that you know that, you know what you have to do. You really can't come off your diet. You will have to eat less than people around you. It's why I had to eat less than people around me. It's why I still love food and I love to, to look at food, but you know I, I can't eat it all. So now that you know that, let it empower you to know what you have to do. You have to find a diet you like that you can live with and stay on it. And you can't really go back to normal after this. You will have a caloric penalty for quite some time.
0: That's really interesting. And I think about, well, a lot of us during this this period where many of us have transition to working from home during COVID-19. I've heard it called the COVID-19, is the weight gain that many of us have had just from sitting at home and having food nearby, but mainly just the, the downturn in physical activity, even something as basic as walking from the parking garage to your office building, right? We've lost that over the past year. And so um, what advice, based on your understanding of the biochemistry of you know of fat, what advice do you have for all of us that are trying to get back into better shape? Um, what steps can we take that will really stick?
1: Yeah, it depends on where you are. So in addition to the book, The Secret Life of Fat, I now have a course about The Secret Life of Fat that kind of puts these learnings into, into action. And so it depends on where you are on the fat spectrum. Right. So like I write about in the book as well, all these other ways we get fat that don't just have to do with overeating. There's all kinds of reasons why some people gain weight easier than others. You know, one part is genetics, right? Fat is correlated to some genetics. There's some specific genes that affect your fat and there's even genotypes like populations of people who will gain weight easier than others. Right. So that's something to keep in mind where you are on the age spectrum matters as well. So we usually, when we're young, we have fat burning hormones running rampantly throughout our body. We have plenty of testosterone, plenty of estrogen, right? Plenty of growth hormone. And as you age, those those hormones decline a lot. And so you're not burning the way you used to burn calories. You have less muscle mass, less bone mass. That's also going to affect it. Even your microbiome affects it. So the type of bacteria you have in your gut, there's some bacteria that will extract a lot of calories out of food and store it into fat. There's some bacteria that let food pass, right? People people, uh, have more waste and they absorb less. So there's a number of components that have to do with weight gain. Overeating is an obvious one, but even if you feel like you're not overeating, yet you're getting fatter, there's a whole bunch of other reasons it could be as well. So you kind of have to diagnose your fat, figure out your fat blueprint. And so, where you are in that will, um, you know, di- will dictate what you have to do to lose the weight. So, if you're a 22 year old male saying you've gained 15 pounds at COVID, you know, but you're otherwise healthy, it's going to be pretty easy to lose it. Honestly, you could go out for a run every day. You could cut out your processed food and carbs, and probably you'll lose that weight in just a few weeks. <laughs> now, <laughs> if you are a middle aged female, right, like I am, it's not going to be that easy. And I've yo yo dieted in the past. So weight can get very, very stuck, right? You have less hormones, you're older, or less of that fat burning tissue. Um, you know, for me, I've like, I always felt there was a genetic component, which I think there is um, based on my ancestry. Um, so I got to work a lot harder. It doesn't move right away. It can stay there for a month. And I, I, a lot of people I know have the same issue. So you have to kickstart it. You have to take advantage of this body of biochemistry that we are. we are, like a bag of biochemistry. So mm-hmm. how can you use that now to kickstart weight loss? And really what you want to try to do is get up some of those fat burning hormones again. So growth hormone, testosterone, you know, estrogen, things like that. And so the more stubborn your fat is, the higher you have to ratchet up your efforts. I have found for really stubborn fat, uh, intermittent fasting is a really good one, right? Because Mm -hmm. uh, it takes advantage of growth hormone, right? Our growth hormone levels peak at night while we're sleeping. And growth hormone is a really good fat burner. But when you eat, it actually mitigates the effect of growth hormone in your body. So if you eat close to bedtime or right after you you wake up, your growth hormone levels are suddenly, you know, the, the activity at less, the effectiveness of it is a little bit less. So if you can stop eating, say at six o'clock, eat nothing until about nine or 10 o'clock the next day. It's more active, right? It can it can be more efficacious. So that that's a good one. Exercise will become more important as well, right? So exercise also increases testosterone um, and growth hormone as well, right? So doing regular exercise. But you just have to, you have to ratchet up your efforts as you age and as you've had more fat and more yo-yo dieting, and you have to keep on it. Um, when you're dealing with the biochemistry of your body, one signal that says, okay, well, we're okay now. There's enough, you know, we're, we're eating. It actually throws off the whole path. It can set you back for like a week or so. So all the little things become really important the older you get. And the book is filled up, you know, it's filled full of 100 tips. <laughs> and so we can only go into it so much. I'm talking at a very high level. But really, you just have to get smarter with age. And if your fat is stubborn, you have to know the tricks about fat.
0: That's great. Well, let's talk about this concept of fat as an organ, which is something that you allude to um, in the book. What do you mean by that? and And let's dive a little bit deeper to some of those hormones. like what how does fat regulate the body's actions?
1: Yeah, so when I say um fat as an organ, that's because a lot of people think of fat as it's just extra calories that are stored in your body right? And, and we know that's not true now. We know that it's actually releasing hormones, just like your pituitary gland releases hormones, your thyroid gland releases hormones. Fat is one of those organs that's releasing hormones. And that's what makes it an organ and not just a tissue, right? Mm-hmm. Is that it's actually active in our body. It's signaling to other organs in the body what to do, right? And it's taking signals back as well. And so that's what's meant by it's an organ. You, you can think of fat like skin, you know, I think like a one- inch of skin is like a piece of skin tissue, right? Not a big deal, but skin in its totality all over our body also acts like an organ and fat is the same way. So you got to respect it a little bit more, right? For what it is. It's not just um, a relic of the past um, that we don't need anymore because we have food everywhere. Like, Like fat is doing more than just storing calories and we talked about leptin, right? We talked about how it produces leptin. That's like a key hormone it produces, It also produces other hormones that our body depends on. Adiponectin is another one, um, and then estrogen is another another important one. And there's a whole host of others, and we don't have a very you know complete clarity on what all the hormones do. Fat research is fairly new, mm-hmm. probably started in the 1980s, 90s as as obesity grew the NIH and other funding organizations started funding fat research more, diabetes research more. And with that added research came more insight about what fat really is. It wasn't really known before. And so our learnings about fat are fairly new um, about how it interacts in our body, how it protects itself, how your body protects it even, using hormones and a number of other things. And so that's what is meant by fat as an organ, right? Um, and we can talk about some of those other um, hormones as well. Like adiponectin is an interesting one. But it's really, it's it's doing a number of things. It's very interactive. It's talking to your brain, talking to your bones. It's talking, right? It's talking through the hormones. It's releasing. It's, it's signaling and controlling other organs in your body.
0: That's great. Well, one thing I'd like to go back to is, is this idea, too, of once you have a lot of weight gain the the shifts that your body has to go through to, to get back to your new normal. And, you know, for women, one of the greatest points of weight gain is pregnancy. Um, and I'm wondering, are there, are there changes also in hormone signaling following pregnancy? Um, or, you know, how do we get rid of the baby fat? I guess the, the post the post pregnancy fat. Yeah. And, and,
1: you know, bodies have ways of dealing with this. In fact, I write about pregnancy and I have a whole chapter on women versus men in Mm -hmm. in the book, because that was always something that vexed me, is that men seem to eat without any punishment. They eat a lot and they lose weight very quickly. so like in the beginning of your body, your, your microbiome actually changes right at the beginning of a pregnancy rather, right? Um, in the beginning, there's not much change. Women can actually lose weight in the first couple of months, mm-hmm. but then afterward, your microbiome changes to a, a uh, distribution of bacteria that actually will extract more calories out of food. So your body wants you to have some extra weight during pregnancy. Um, and that maintains for a while, then I think it finally you know, reaches a, a steady state. But then afterward, of course, yes, there's a weight gain to deal with lactation is a great way to burn all that energy. And I think a lot of women who breastfeed afterward, it actually can go fairly quickly and you might have looser skin. You might have other you know things to deal with, but I, I feel like weight gain after pregnancy can be easier as well. I mean, one thing is pregnancy in general, there's an increase in, in, in something called angiogenesis, right? Where you have more vein blood supply to mm-hmm. your new fat. This happens even without pregnancy, honestly, the more, the more fat you get, there's more signaling as well that, hey, there's all this new fat mass here, and we need, we need blood supply, right? We need, we need to now um, host it. And so veins will actually start growing in the direction of your new fat, and it'll start right, and it becomes more pathways by which you can feed extra nutrients to fat and get even fatter. So yeah, I write about like like fat begets fat, if you will, and fat loss begets fat loss. So this is one way fat begets fat, right? Is that you have more blood supply there, and you know, especially after pregnancy because you have higher angiogenesis in general during pregnancy, right? So you now have more ways of feeding your fat. So yeah, fat loss can be a little bit harder. I think for, for women who are pregnant, take advantage of breastfeeding. It's a great way to lose fat. It burns a lot of calories actually, but afterward you'll have to be more careful and that's just the way it is. And you'll no matter what, with age, you have to be more careful, even if you never had a kid, right? You, you have to be more careful as you reach middle age years.
0: That's great, yeah, it's such a there's so many different complex factors as you mentioned, microbiome, your gender, your age, your overall health. Um, all these seem to be influencers. So when it when it comes to the dinner plate, what can you tell us about tips um, with with feeding behavior?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one thing is try to eat dinner early for one, right? If you're going to have dinner, like I said, I think intermittent fasting works really well if you have stubborn fat in particular, Mm -hmm. right? Um, and and I, this has been kind of studied in a number of different areas. The circadian rhythms as well, right? We tend to pack on food more at night than you do in the morning. So eating late is bad. It's bad for growth hormone um, effect efficace, uh, efficacy as well. So what you are what you are going to eat lower carbs at night for sure, right? If you can stay higher protein, higher fat, and lower carbs, I think that'll help. Um, if you can make dinner your smaller meal. Um, of the day, that's also helpful. And then if you can just eat it really early, right? So I eat sometimes just a very small, um, it's almost a snack, right? At about three or four o'clock and I don't eat again until the next day. And that's about the only way I can kind of maintain weight loss, right? And I'm, I'm middle-aged, had two kids, <laughs> you know, I have all these, these things I fight with. So that's what's been the most, um, I, I think one of the best ways to do it. I mean, the other way, it doesn't work for everyone, especially if you like to have dinner with your family. So the other thing to take into consideration what diet works for you, right? And your lifestyle, because you will have to stay on this diet for a long time. If you have stubborn fat, you can't pick one that's faddish, right? That's something Mm -hmm. for six months. And then you think you can come off and be normal again, because you won't be able to be normal again. So if dinner is important to you, I've known people who've done other things. They eat almost, you know, very little during the day, right? Maybe um, just like a, a something, a piece of toast for breakfast, a yogurt for lunch, and then they'll go on and they'll have like a small, you know, medium-sized dinner with their family. And they've been able to maintain weight too. So it's, again, it's about prolonging the fast. That's just a different time that they actually eat. But I think actually eating early in the day has better effects. If you can do that, I think that's a better one to stop at about, you know, have your main meal before two o'clock and then something light maybe a little bit later. But if you can't, right? And again, this has to work for you forever. So if you need to have dinner, have it. But then, you know, keep your fast going in the morning if you can.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I'd like. You know the the idea of what's considered normal is also interesting because I think from culture to culture, a normal sized meal it's very different. It can differ from cuisine to cuisine. And I would say in the Western diet, our concept of what is normal is is, you know, much larger than a typical meal in in many other um, parts of the world. Um, also, the composition of those foods is important. So when it comes to, The types of foods that you eat from a biochemistry perspective, you know, what are the, what are the major offenders? Is it eating foods that are rich in fat or is it more of eating foods that are rich in sugars and, um, simple carbohydrates? So I think that's been answered so many times, right? And all the
1: latest diet books that have come out and the research that comes out. I mean, certainly sugar is a really big culprit. And this is part of taking advantage of our biochemistry, because as we know, sugar provokes insulin, insulin stores a lot of calories into your fat very quickly, right? Um, but you know, it, it's more to it than that. just that being that simplistic, I think, as far as the kind of food to eat. Our bodies react to foods differently, and there's research that shows this, right? There's some people who can eat, say, you know, a muffin or a cookie, and they don't really get a blood sugar spike, they're fine. And there's some people who even have like, you know, they have a prune or a piece of fruit and their blood sugar spiking high. Mm -hmm. So we all react differently to food, and some of that will be your past history of diet that you've had, how your body is tuned. Some of it could be genetic as well, right? So you have to tune into your own body and what you can and can't eat. There's obvious offenders, sugar, right? Flour, things like that, white flour, those are... Clearly, I think for any body type going to help you gain weight. But what's your tolerance for some sugar? Some people are different. There are people who can have, you know, yogurt's full of sugar, but they can eat yogurts. They can eat um, some sweets. And we see this all the time around us, right? We see these people being able to eat this and they're not getting fat. That doesn't mean that that's going to work for you. You might have a body very sensitive to any kind of carbohydrate that loves to put out insulin all the time, and store and you'll know, put everything away. And then you have to decide that for yourself. And and a good way to, to figure it out is is keeping a really tight food log. All right, what do you eat every day? Right, what is the calorie content, um, and what do you weigh every day? And you'll start to see things that help your weight loss and things that hurt it. I know I've learned what I can get away with. You know, there's there's some foods that are supposed to be horrible, and oh my gosh, you should never eat them because it causes mm-hmm. high, high, high hyperglycemic index, but but it doesn't happen to me. Like a banana is supposed to be terrible for dieting, and yet I, I can seem to eat this and nothing bad happens to me. Mm-hmm. So keep a log, and you'll start to understand. There's obvious ones stay away from, you know, a lot of sugars and flowers, right? Um, and then you know, but then there's there's probably variation. Like what what other things that you can have? Um, and then I think. I know there's high fat diets out there, the keto diets, things like that. I think those work if you're not having sugars and flours with them. So it's all about what's the mix of, mm-hmm. of chemicals you're putting in your body. So if you want to have high fats, then you probably shouldn't have much carbohydrate with that at all, because you know that's what's going to make all those fats now go into your, you know, get, get absorbed into your into your fat tissue right? But then if you want to have sugars, then you probably shouldn't have a lot of high fats because those fats would go right into your your fat tissue again. So you can do either or, it seems like. And there are diets that are more revolving around bread, right? But they tend to be lower fat because, you know, for a reason, because it depends on the mix of calories that you're getting. So you can pick one of the extreme diets and probably do, okay? If you like to mix it up, though, right? You like to have some fats and some carbs, you know, which is kind of the bucket I'm in, then I think the intermittent fasting piece works better. Because you have more food latitude when you're doing fasting, you can kind of eat a little bit of what you want when you are eating, as long as you have that fasting window. Mm. And so it's personality driven. Some people are okay with, um, you know, just selecting 20 foods or so they can eat and shopping around them, preparing foods and, and they can eat all day and they can do okay. But if you're more like me where um, I don't want to have to think about it all the time,
0: <laughs> I eat what yeah. I <laughs>
1: sometime, right. Then I think, I think the fasting, period works better because I can have more food latitude and what I do eat. And I can even cheat a little bit. If there's something I'm dying to have that I really want, I could have it in that window in a moderate amount. And I don't actually gain weight as long as I do that fasting period.
0: Great. That's great. So, um, what's next on your, on your plans for, for work and, and writing in this, in this area? Yeah,
1: I think I've gotten much more interested in the psychology of food and weight loss, right? Because that's almost the biggest barrier you have to solve first before food starts mattering, because we all know what to do. I mean, there's dieting's been around for, you know, 100 years. There's been tons of diet books. and um, But it's almost how do you how do you get there? How do you start? Right. How, how do you get yourself to want to be this new person to go on what is really a kind of life changing journey, if you will? And it, it's not a light undertaking. I, th- I think a lot of us can lose five or 10 pounds. Do we stay there? Right. And mm-hmm. what is it to stay there? And, you know, there, there's some research done. There's a national weight control registry where they study people who've had success with long term weight loss. And what do they do to get there? And there's a lot of effort applied. Like they actually do keep a, a log. They log the food very consistently. They weigh themselves consistently. They exercise consistently. If they gain a couple pounds, they take it right off. Right, so it's, it's a matter of being on it all the time. And and the problem with doing that is that you get tired of this, right? You get tired of a life that's so constricted and I just want to let loose and, you know, have a beer and a pizza or whatever, right? So so like there's a a process of building up your mental muscle, if you will, to be able to stay on this restriction forever, every day. And and it's a hard one to do because in order to do it, you almost have to give yourself breaks. There's research now showing that people who like stay on like a, a regimented behavior pattern, it starts to wear off after a while and they get you know, a little lazier and they let loose. Like like doctors in hospitals who are told to wash their hands all the time, wash your hands, wash your hands. They notice that towards the end of the day, they do it less. They just get tired of it. Mm-hmm. But if you give them breaks during the day, they'll actually continue to wash their hands for longer, right? And, and so there's something around giving yourself a break, yet not going down a slippery slope of, of losing all of your right progress today mm-hmm. and getting back on the same kind of zeal that you had before. And how do you get back on quickly? I think that's the missing piece in psychology for anything, for any kind of behavior modification. And when I, I talk to um, coaches, people who do uh, medical weight loss like at Tufts University and Jowson Center and, and coaches, right, personal coaches as well, mm-hmm. women have a harder time with this than men. This is an interesting thing. Um, when they go off a diet, they tend to beat themselves off a lot. Like I went off my diet. I'm terrible. I failed. Right. It's something called mm-hmm. kind of thinking, you know, if I didn't have a perfect day, I had a failed day and I'm a failure and it makes it hard for them to get back on. Right. So they, yeah. they go off the rails. Whereas guys will be like, yeah, you know, I had a beer. um, All right. So what, let's, let's just get back on it today. Right? There's more of an emotional component here. And so if you can, and part of the the value some of these coaches bring to their patients um, or clients is that they coach them to get back on right away, right? Like you don't want to lose all your progress because you had an ice cream, it's okay to have an ice cream, let's get back on, let's not lose all the progress. But if that coach isn't there, a lot of these people don't come back. They went off the rails and now they're depressed and now they feel like a loser and they can't get back on. So so that piece of it, of like how to get back on quickly, it seems trivial, but I don't think it is. I think that's a really hard part because it seems like from the research on behaviors that you have to give yourself a break here or there. Okay, now, now how do you not cause that to ruin everything you just accomplished? <laughs> so anyway, that, that's my latest area of, of uh, research and interest is more of the psychology and I think especially because of COVID, because research also shows that when we're under stressful times, like a recession or a depression, candy sales go up high. Like, oh, I bet. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's only a certain amount of stress it seems like we're able to take. And mm-hmm. COVID, we're out of control. You're stuck inside. I can't go out. I can't go here. I can't go there. I don't know what the future is, right? There's just like a, a depression or recession. There's a, a certain amount of uncertainty here, and I don't know what's going to happen. And that um, situation, stressful situations, make people um, want to control themselves less. And in a way, it's just like those doctors in the hospital. Like if I have to do this all the time and I'm tired of doing this, like I just don't want to do this thing anymore it translates to also, you know, eating, right? So people have a lot of weight gain. Part of it is it's not just, I mean, we all knew what to do. We could have all still exercised. We could have all not eaten out of our fridge all day, but we kind of did anyway. <laughs> it's yeah. stress related. And so then, you know, the, the whole thing around stress and weight gain, and even though you know the right thing to do, why you don't do it, that's a really interesting area. And I don't think it's, it's trivial.
0: Absolutely. I'm thinking about other changes to across the population, you alcohol consumption went way up during COVID. And that's also a huge source of calories for people, they may not realize um, how much, you know, in addition to the other damaging factors of over consumption of alcohol, it also makes you fat. (laughs) So.
1: Wow. Yeah. And I think there's lack of entertainment. You can go out and mm-hmm. see a movie. So what can I do? I can have a drink and, you know, talk mm-hmm. on the phone or whatever. And so, so many things led to that. But I do think part of you know, part of it was being out of control and that feeling. Yeah. Um, that, and yeah, you know, there's a lot of, I have a whole chapter in the book and in the course as well. It's called Mind Over Facts. So I started looking into it for this book. And mm-hmm. you know, the more you ask people to exert themselves, the tire, the more tired they get and they tend to give up. Like there's one where they ask people to hold a hand uh, gripper for a long time. Mm -hmm. And they have two groups of people. And they give them a break of holding the hand gripper. And for one group of people, they go and they show them a sad movie. The other group, they show them a happy movie, right? And the group that has the happy movie, they're able to get back to the exercise and hold a hand gripper for longer than the one that's shown the sad movie. The one that's shown the sad movie, they just like, whatever. Like they don't feel like holding this gripper (laughs) anymore. And it's not unlike dieting, because like the hand gripper, dieting is a prolonged um, effort, right, where you're doing this for a while. So you have to have some happy moments in there, right, or else you're not going to want to be on this prolonged one. And then these people in that database I talked about, the National Weight Control Registry, there's something that galvanized them to start. And a lot of times it was they had a diagnosis, like it was serious. They can't Mm. go on the way they Mm -hmm. are. And that in itself might keep them on this prolonged way. They know what the alternative is. The other trigger seems to be they got a picture of themselves, right? Where they look by far heavier than they ever mm-hmm. thought they were. Their, their mind never registered they had gotten this heavy. So it was a shock. Yeah. And that shock, whether a diagnosis or a picture of yourself, it was just this big wake-up call of what am I doing? Mm-hmm. And and so that actually, I think, also helps them keep stay on this really pro, you know prolonged mission, right? This control of every day they're at this and they don't come off because they know what the alternative is. So how do we start right on the path and how do we stay on the path? That That's a really important one because I think so many diet books have been out there. We all kind of know what to do, right? But but we don't do it, right? We come off all yeah. the time
0: and it's more mental. Well, I think, you know, with the influence of of the the biochemical influence of these hormones and also the impact it has on our feelings and our, our state of mind yeah. um, and the psychological struggles of really sticking with new patterns, I guess one... One concern I have, you know, from from a nutrition and and kind of psych- mental health perspective is, you know, where do you draw the line though between doing something that's good for your health versus being worried about moving into that realm of eating disorders, right? Because I think you know, I'm I'm not an expert in psychology by any means, but I worry about about that too. It's like can we become too obsessive about our food to the point where it becomes a clinical problem. How do we stay in that zone of like this is good for me and not getting into that into that other yeah. arena?
1: Yeah. And you know, I mean food disorders is a type of anxiety a lot of time, right? You mm-hmm. get go- worried about it and actually like anorexia has been around for a long time i think mm-hmm. the first case was the middle ages so it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to do with yeah. dieting, keeping weight off it's kind of an, an issue unto itself some people have a lot of anxiety it manifests itself in a form of, of food and control and being afraid of food now right mm-hmm. uh, something like that so it, it, for some people but mostly not right mostly people do not have that response Um, but for some people it can go into obsession. And I think you have to know yourself a little bit to decide then which diet do you want to stay on? And any diet can make you go into that mode. it's not even just intermittent fasting, right? I think when I wrote the book, some people thought I had an eating disorder, but I I don't, I clearly, I don't, I have no problem gaining weight, but, um, But it could be like for some people it could trigger that, but then any diet can trigger that, right? Just calories can trigger that. And so I think, you know, you kind of have to, again, be just be wary of your own responses to what you're doing. Are you getting obsessive about it? Are you restricting more? Are you over-exercising? Are you, you know, just completely consumed with losing weight? Everything has to be in a balance. And if you're on, on any of that, and even if it's manifesting in other places, other types of obsessive compulsive disorder that you're seeing, it's just something to be careful of that it doesn't start to manifest in your diet. And if you start think it does, then you should certainly see a specialist or an, an eating disorder specialist. But I mean, I think that the vast many of millions of people who are overweight would tell you that's not happening far and wide. I think there's a small percentage where yeah. it can trigger that behavior. But that if you have a propensity for that behavior, it's there, even if you don't diet, right? Or even yeah. if you pick a, a different diet where you eat all day, but you eat a certain type of food, it's always going to be there and should be treated.
0: Yeah. I guess for, for my personal journey, I try to think about, you know, how, how can I do things that are supportive of health in general, that makes my body feel good. So not to get too caught up on, caught up in body image and more about how do I feel? Am I able to walk for a certain distance? Am I able to um, sleep well? Like, what are the things that make my body feel good? And really, like you said, becoming tuned in, into what those what your body feels like. I think a lot of us kind of ignore those signals. And so just being more aware is, is an important step to that.
1: Um, yeah, for sure. And, and while you're losing weight though, you might not feel great, right? That's just a mm-hmm. kind of a transition you're going through. So, I mean, there are times where I get more, t- I suppose in the beginning of a diet, right? I, at times I'm more tired and, you know, my body's clamoring to, to get, get, my fat back so you have to be that's why it's important to be conscious of some of the research I write about
0: mm-hmm. because
1: you will get obsessive about food you will feel perhaps tired because your body's adjusting to this new normal
0: yeah you know, in some
1: way fat is our, our signal to our, our brains on what's going on in our environment so if we're if our fat's detecting hey there's less food I'm not storing as much fat or you know my fat's decreasing it's a big signal to our ancestral brains that there's a problem in the environment and you should be very very worried right yeah. you go Eating food and every calorie you find, you should eat it, right? And you should stop exercising. In fact, we're now going to switch to a different muscle cell that, that's actually going to burn and the muscle protein is going to burn less, um, less calories. Like, oh my gosh, like, because think of all the famine, right? That went on, uh, war, oh, famine, absolutely. all kinds of starvation, and, and our, our like genetic past that we carry with us. And so, yeah, I couldn't guarantee that when you go on a diet, you're not going to feel some discomfort. And so you do have to get through that period. And you might never feel, I hate to say, as great, right, as when you see whatever you felt like, because that felt really good. But but long term, that also has consequences, right? There's heart disease and diabetes and things to worry about. Yeah. So it's a compromise, right? It's, It's what can I live with, you know, as far as happiness with food and how I feel and what is my body? What state is it in right now? And, um. You know, you don't want to be tortured every day, but but it might not be as fun as when we were teenagers and could eat whatever we felt like.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. Well, great. Well, Sylvia, where can um, our audience find out more about your book and also your course? Where can we direct them?
1: Yeah. So the the course is available at my website. It's www.thesecretlifeoffat.com. And you can you can download it there. The book is also available on Amazon. Um, and so that's good. And I'm on Facebook. I'm at Sylvia Tara PhD on Facebook and Twitter. So you can reach me there as well.
0: Great. Well, this was really, really an interesting conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you for coming on the show. Great. Thank you. Good to be here. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for The Food Curious recorded on Skype. You can find this and all of our other episodes at the foodiepharmacology.com website. You can also find the video of this episode at our YouTube channel at Teach F. No Botany in the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. We are also on Apple Podcasts. Please go on to the Apple Podcast if you don't mind and give us a rating and maybe a comment or two. That would be really amazing to help boost our reach to a broader audience. Thanks so much to our show's producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for their support from um, Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. And thank you to you, our, our listeners. Stay healthy out there. I'll see you next week.